KMTT Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. We'll be hosting Harav Yitzhak Blau, who will be giving a series on modern rabbinic thought. So far in this series, we've looked at the thought of Rav Tzadok HaKoyen from Lublin and the Nitziv and the Meshach Achma. And now we're going to look at the thought of a very important Achron who has not received enough attention, and that is Rav Yitzhak Hutner. It's quite striking if one looks at the scholarly articles written on Rav Cook and Rav Salvechik, one will probably discover more than 100 articles written on the thought of each. And on the scholarly output of Rav Hutner, a creative thinker, a thinker of uh, supreme importance, I'm aware, I think, of about two or three scholarly articles upon him. So really, the time has come for the world of the Beit Midrash and the world of the Academy to put their attention to the thought of Rav Yitzchak Hutner. Begin with a brief biography. Rav Hutner was born in 1906 and passed away in 1980. He was born in Warsaw. At a young age, he was sent to Slobodka Yeshiva to learn. Uh, he was uh, immediately a favorite of the altar, Rav Nassim Svifinkel, the author of Slobodka, who had a special eye for the up-and-coming talent, and he picked out Rav Hutner as such, uh, such a talent. Slobodka Yeshiva, of course, started a branch in Hebron in Israel in the 1920s, and Rav Hutner was one of those that went. This branch ended up moving after the riots of 1929, which of course explains why there is now a Hebron yeshiva in Givat Mordechai. During his time in Israel, Rav Hutner grew close with Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKoyen Kok. In fact, in his first published sefer, a work called Tarat HaNazir, there are three Haskamot, three rabbinic approbations. One of them is from Rav Kok. Uh, unfortunately, in subsequent editions, all three are removed, and... This may represent uh, somewhat of a shift in Rav Hutner's thought away from uh, where Rav Kook was holding. Indeed, there are legends that Rav Hutner used to have a picture of Rav Kook up in his sukkah and ultimately took it down. But certainly the fact that Rav Kook wrote Haskama to his earlier sefer certainly indicates a strong connection between them. Rav Hutner apparently also spent time in Berlin. There are different uh, legends about whether he actually attended the University of Berlin or not. But Rav Hutner certainly was a very intellectually curious person, and his curiosity extended itself to broader broader uh, philosophical trends. Then, in, the ni- in 1935, Rav Hutner and his wife moved to America, and Rav Hutner ended up becoming the Rosh Hashiva of Chaim Berlin, which was his uh, main job for most of his lifetime. During this time in Chaim Berlin, Rav Hutner became known as a great magachir, and particularly in the world of Machshava, and particularly Chagim time. Over the Chagim, students from other yeshivas as well would come to hear his shmuz or his mamar, and these, of course, are published in the work Pachad Yitzchak, which is one of the most significant works on the Chagim in recent time. At the end of his life, Rav Hutner actually moved back to Israel and was involved in the find, founding of the Yeshiva Pachad Yitzchak in Yerushalayim. Among Rav Hutner's works, of course, as we mentioned, there's the Pachad Yitzchak, which is for the most part on the Chagim, although there is also a volume of igrot and ktavim, of letters and writings, which in some ways might be the best introduction to Rav Hutner. There's also a memorial volume, which includes a biography written by his daughter, Buria David. She, it's also interesting to note that she received a doctorate from Columbia written under Salah Baron, a doctorate written on the Maritz Chayot. And uh, beyond his Machshava work, he has the work Torah and Hanazir we mentioned, and he has a very interesting work on the commentary of Rabbeinu Hill on the Sifra. In this work, Rav Hutner lists all the halachot found in the Sifra that don't appear in the Talmud Bavli, which certainly indicates that Rav Hutner was uh, great in the world of uh, Gemara as well, although... His farm that have become most significant and most influential are certainly the works of Machshava. With that, let's begin discussing the Machshava of Rav Hutner. And I think the first point that needs to be made was Rav Hutner was really a poet. 
And I think the poetic aspect of a footner's personality is expressed in a few ways. I think simply in his use of language. I think when one reads through Pachar Yitzchak, one has a sense of a poetic expression that is not found in many achonim. Certainly, uh, Rav Kook and Rav Salvechik were both capable of beautiful, beautiful expression as well. But in some ways, uh, Rav Kook, uh, Rav Hutner, excuse me, is perhaps the most poetic of them all. Here, I can't really illustrate it with a speci- specific pa- passage, but I, I really recommend learning through Pachar Yitzchak, and I think one will see what I'm talking about. However, I think the po- poetic spirit of Rav Hutner is expressed in two other ways, which I do have examples of. One is in a tremendous sensitivity to language. Rav Hutner will often notice a choice of word that's unusual or a phrase that wasn't necessary and build on that. Just one very brief example in uh, the volume of Pachar Yitzchak on Pesach Mamarchet, Rav Hutner raises a very interesting question. He asks about the mitzvah to love the ger, to love the convert, and he points out that there's really two ways to understand this mitzvah. We could love the convert because nebuch the convert, meaning it's difficult. A person abandons their family to some degree and their religion and their whole lifestyle and joins a different, a whole different society and a different religion. This is something that's quite difficult. It can be isolating, it can involve frustration, and therefore we need to love the ger out of sympathy, sympathy for the plight of the ger. There's another possibility which one loves the ger because the ger has done something exalted. Right? This is a tremendous achievement to throw away what one, one was brought up with because one sees a truth and a goodness elsewhere. And therefore, one loves the noble quality of the ger. So this is a hakiva Rav raises in terms of Avada ger. But then, through close readings, he tries to prove which one might be correct according to different opinions. So the Rambam in the sixth parak of Hilchot Deot mentions the mitzvah Avada ger. And he says... The Torah says to love the convert. God commanded love of the convert as he commanded love of himself. As it says, Now here, as he points out, why, why the Rambam didn't need to add this line. The Rambam could have just said that there's the various mitzvot of Ava. Why does he have to say that the mitzvah of Ava is somehow like Ava Tatzmo? So Rav argues that's precisely the point the Rambam is trying to make that Avat Ager is not Nebuch Ager. We certainly don't love the Ribbon Sholom because he's Nebuch, right? Chas Shalom. It's just the opposite. Hashem is the most exalted being there is. In the same way, Avat Ager is the, we're loving the exalted aspect of the Ger and not, not the, uh, not the Nebuch aspect of the Ger. That's not the cause of Avat Ager. He also makes an inference in a Pazak, right? The Pazak says, Ose Mishpat Yatom Valmana, the Ohev Ger. So, Rafiner points out, if you look at the breakup of this Pasuk, it's making a differentiation. The orphan and the widow need help. They need justice to be done. There are people who are suffering in the world, and Mishpat is in order. But then there's a break. But Hashem loves the convert. Right? The convert is not someone who needs Mishpat, not someone who needs a wrong redressed. The convert is simply someone exalted who deserves our love as a result. Now, of course, Rav Hutner is not the only one to make inferences in the Rambam for extra words and extra lines. I still think that uh, this illustrates Rav sensitivity to language, which, uh, again, when we learn through Pachar Yitzchak, one will, I think, see this in um, one case after another. So we've talked about Rav use of poetic expression and his sensitivity to language. I believe that a third aspect of Rav poetic spirit is his uh, great success with the use of a metaphor, with the use of mashal. And here I'd like to look at a few specific mashalim that Rav has suggested, and then look at a piece that analyzes the very concept of mashal. And there are a few very powerful mashalim in Rafutner's Zegrot. There's one extremely powerful one on page Kuf Beidad. 
And Rav Futner had obviously received a letter from a student who had, was embarking on a secular career. And the student had, uh, we don't have the student's letter, but the student had given the impression that he now viewed himself as leaving a dual life. Right, that he has his religious aspect of the personality, I guess when he's learning and davening and the like, and he has his uh, secular or irreligious aspect of his life when he is involved in his career. So, Rafutner tells him, I would never agree to living such a double life. And then Rafutner has his mashal. He says, let's say a person rents a room in a house, and there is going to be his regular life. And he rents another room in a hotel, So indeed, such a person would have a double life, right? Their whole life as a regular citizen and their life in the hotel. However, says Rav Hutner, someone who rents a house with two rooms, yeshlo broad life, not double life. And here Rav Hutner is making a very significant point. The fact that one is engaged in several endeavors doesn't mean that there can't be a unifying principle that makes all of those endeavors head in the same direction, point towards the same goal. And indeed, the idea of uh, commitment to some religious growth, some religious mission, doesn't mean that there can't be several endeavors that were engaged in at the time. And a secular career, when done properly, can, of course, enhance one's uh, religious mission. And this is a significant theme in Rafutner. I think, uh, as we'll see later, Rafutner also wrote a lot about Devar Rishut and how one can sanctify Devar Rishut. And in this letter, in the Igrot, with the broad life and the mashal, Rav Hutner makes reference to a Dr. Wallach, a doctor in Yushalayim. I believe he was involved in the founding of Shari Tzedek. And he says that when he would come towards the sickness before the surgery, he would ask for the name of the mother in order to daven about the surgery. And Rav Hutner says, when you think about this individual, this Dr. Wallach, who obviously combined both success as a surgeon and piety, Rav Hutner says, Hagidin Ali Ha'emet, Ahuvai this is double life? This is double life, and of course the answer is no. That here, in this Dr. Wallach's personality, his religious vision, and his, so to speak, secular career as a doctor came together. And Rafutner says this is the idea of that it's not just a question for Rafutner of how elongated our recital of Echad in the Pasuk, Shema Yisrael Hashem Echad is, but it rather it refers to a value, a broader value that the various aspects of a person's life should head in the same direction. As uh, Ravina does not mention it, but one might think of the famous Danish philosopher Kierkegaard who wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Now, willing one thing doesn't mean that one does one thing. One can do several things. But those various things contribute towards some unified vision of the good life. So this is one powerful Mashal Ravina uses in the growth. Another powerful mashal in the Grot appears on page Kuf Lamedalad. And here, Rafutner is giving a talk to some younger yeshiva students at East, Eastern Parkway. It's a talk he gave in Hanukkah, in Tavshin Chav Gimel. And Rafutner begins by saying that he'd like to speak to them all individually, but he can't. Necessity and time constraints uh, demand that he speak to them all as a group. And Rafutner says, he asks them a question. He says to them that Reb Chaim Velazhin introduced a shift in terminology into the world of yeshivot. Beforehand, the students of the yeshiva were called Tamidei Yeshiva. Right? Indeed, this would seem to be the appropriate Hebrew term. Rav Chaim Velazhin insisted that they be called Bnei Yeshiva and not Tamidei Yeshiva. And again, I think this again indicates the sensitivity to language. Rav Hunter is curious why the terminology shift. Why does it matter that they're called Bnei Yeshiva rather than Tamidei Yeshiva? 
So Fertner says that uh, he, wa- he stopped a, a boy recently and he asked him a question. And he said to this boy, you learn from a Gemara Rebbe and you learn from a secular studies teacher. So what's the difference between your relationship between the Gemara Rebbe and the relationship between the secular studies teacher? So the young student answered, my relationship with my secular studies teacher, it's like the one who receives food from the cook. Right? Imagine one's in a school cafeteria and one lines up and the cook gives you the food and you get it. So you get something from that cook. But what's my relationship with the Rebbe? It's as if one is getting money from a nursing mother. Now what's the deal difference between getting food, getting food, excuse me, from the nursing mother? What's the difference between getting food from the cook and getting food from the nursing mother? So the answer is obvious, and Rafutner explains. When one receives food from the cook, the food is something totally outside of the cook. Right? The food is not the essence of the cook. However, when one receives food from the nursing mother, she's giving up her essence. There's a sense that the, the material and the information being given over, the stuff being given over, is part of the essence of the person giving it. And of course, in education, one can have a similar split. One can have education as giving over a body of knowledge. That knowledge is not somehow an inherent part of the personality of the teacher, but the teacher happens to know the knowledge and gives it over. Or of course, education can be where the knowledge and the lifestyle and the personality of the teacher is all one. And this knowledge is not something divorced and outside of the teacher's life, but rather this is what the teacher stands for. It is knowledge that truly matters to who the teacher is, and the teacher is therefore giving over of their essence. Now, this is something that can come up, of course, in uh, the academic world as well, where Rav Huttner is drawing a sharp split between the Rebbe and the secular studies teacher. One might say that the same split could exist both within the yeshiva world and in the broader world. In the yeshiva world, there might be great Magide Shir, who unfortunately aren't, on a personal level, representatives of the ideals of, of Torah, and one would have to say that the good Torah they give over is like the cook in that situation. They have the information, they have the analysis, but it isn't really them. It hasn't permeated who they are. Conversely, in the secular world also, there could be a split in different professors in university, somewhere the knowledge is totally uh, estranged from who they are, and somewhere the knowledge is part of what they really stand for in life, and they're willing to give that over. This calls to mind, of course, the famous story with Bertrand Russell. Uh, Bertrand Russell was once argued, was once asked, how can you teach ethical philosophy? After all, you're not such an ethical person. And Russell famously answered, would you expect uh, the geometry teacher to be a triangle? Now, of course, it's a very clever line, but perhaps we would uh, deny the analogy and argue that when it comes to the world of the spirit, the world of literature and philosophy, we would like the information to not be something abstract, something unconnected to the human being, but rather part and parcel of who they are. And the student says, that's why it has to be b'nei ha'yeshiva. This is Rav Hunter's point. Right. Rabbi Chaim Blasen wanted to say we're not just online to get the food, but rather the Rebbe Talmud relationship should be a giving over of the personality of the Rebbe, an integrated knowledge and personality, and also the student needs to think in terms of personal growth. It is a nursing more than it is a receiving of food. Rafutner then connects this back to his opening note, in which he argued that he would like to speak to all of them individually, and Rafutner points out that the cook can give out food en masse. The cook will uh, bring out a huge pot, and the th- 30 students will eat from that pot. Whereas the nursing mother can only feed one by one. And of course, this links with the theme we said before. If it's just a question of knowledge that isn't really part of anyone's personality, personal growth is not part of the educational equation, then indeed you could just put it out on the table and come one, come all. 30 could come and get it. 
Whereas, if one thinks about personal growth, both in terms of the knowledge as reflecting part of who the teacher is, and in terms of the student as a growing individual, of course, at that point, individuality and the individualization of the education becomes more significant. And indeed, I think in university, one would find an overlap. Those professors for whom the knowledge is not just knowledge, but really part of who they are, those teachers are more likely to be interested in the developing a personal relationship with the students. And once again, I think we find the mashal used with great effect. A third famous mashal Rufiner has is a letter to a young Rav about to take his first position. Okay, although the, names do not, the name does not appear, I am aware that this Rav is Rabbi Simcha Kraus, who now lives in Yushalayim, but was a Rav first in St. Louis and then in Queens. And Rafuna explains to him what a Rav is supposed to be. And Rafuna uses a mashal of the town clock. Rafuna says the town clock is always put in a very high place. And he asks, why does the town clock need to be in a high place? Rafutner explains that if the clock is lower, then everybody in town adjusts the town clock according to their watch. However, when the town clock is in a place that's out of reach, then everybody in town adjusts their clock according to the town clock. And Rafutner says that the rub of the town has to be the town clock, someone who is not adjusting constantly to meet what the people want, but rather someone who stands for a certain ideal in which the people see that as an ideal that they would like to live up to. So this is also a good use of a mashal. We'll perhaps use one last mashal and then move on to what Rafuner says about the mashalim in general. Rafuner in Purim asks a question about Purim. And he points out that Purim seems to be a little unusual in how unrestrained we are in our joy and happiness in almost a wild way. Rafuner contrasts this unrestrained wildness and enthusiasm of Purim what we find on the other Chagim. And the other Chagim, says that we find an amount of uh, gvul. For example, if one says that one fulfills Simchat Yom Tov through eating meat and drinking wine, so this would not mean an endless amount of weed and endless amount of wine, but rather one could talk about uh, defined quantities, such as a kazayat of meat and a revit of wine. He also cites the Rambam, the famous Rambam in Hilchos Yom Tov in Pergvav, where the Rambam says the Beitin would make a police force, so Trimbergalin, to make sure that the joy didn't get any out of hand and problematic things happen. And this does not seem to reflect our experience of Purim. Here we have uh, masquerading and Purim spiels and the possibility that it might actually be halakhically required to become a bit tipsy. This is all part of Purim and does not seem to reflect what we have in our notion of Simcha in a halakhic context during the rest of the year. And Rafunner explains, once again, with a very powerful mashal. <coughs> Rafunner says, let's contrast two different kinds of people who want to have a sudat hoda'ah, a meal to give thanks for something great, for recovery. And Rafunner talks about someone who has a physical ailment, someone who's been seriously ill, and then recovers and has a sudat to give thanks, as opposed to someone who was depressed, who then recovers from that depression, and also has a sudat hoda'ah. And Rafunner says, for the first person, there will be a shiur, there will be a mount, Right, one will have a celebration that is parallel to, to the f- recovery, right, to the sense of recovery from the illness. And the celebration is simply giving expression to that thanks. The recovery has happened, and the celebration is thanking for the recovery. However, when someone's depressed and then gets better and has a party, there'll be no amount, because the party is not just a thank you for the recovery. The party is in itself a furthering of that recovery. The ability to celebrate, the ability to give expression to joy, that every moment is a statement of overcoming depression. So there, the joy in the party will have an unrestrained quality in the way that the party for someone who is sick and recovered does not. 
Then Rafuner asks, what exactly is the essence of Purim? Now, the Purim story has often been thought of as the clash with Amalek, if Haman is indeed a descendant of Amalek. And that, of course, leads to the question, what Amalek represents? And clearly in Jewish, Amalek can represent many different things. Rafuner gives his particular, own particular uh, interpretation of this. Rafuner cites the Pasuk about Amalek, Asher Karcha Baderach, which Rashi famously said, Karcha is from Lashon Kar that Amrisa was like a hot bath that no one wanted to get into. The other nations were intimidated after Yitziat Mitzrayim. And then Amalek came in, and the first person who goes into the hot bath gets a little singed, but he calls the bath for others. And Amalek's decision to attack Am Yisrael following Yitziat Mitzrayim, this cooled off the bath, enabled others to who feel they could attack Am Yisrael. Now, Rav Hunter takes this coolness in another way. This coolness has to do with a lack of enthusiasm for mitzvot. So now for Rafuner, the clash with Amalek is the clash or the challenge of the dulling of enthusiasm for a life of mitzvot. Now Rafuner does not explain where one sees this in the Purim story, but I think one could suggest that the, the, the very fact the Jews decided to go to the party, that that might reveal they were searching for a good time. There was a sense that the framework of halakha, that the life of Torah and mitzvot does not provide for joy and enthusiasm. And indeed, if one does not find joy and enthusiasm in Torah, one will then invariably look for it elsewhere. So perhaps one could suggest that's really part of the whole clash, is joy, is happiness to be found in Torah and Mitzvot or to be found elsewhere. Maybe that was one of the challenges of the Perm story. If that's true, so Perm is about the fact that it, we f- do find joy and enthusiasm in Mitzvot. Simcha Shal Mitzvah as a model. And if that's true, of course, it makes sense that the joy will be unrestrained, not limited by specific boundaries. Right? Other Chagim were giving thanks for something that happened. So the, the Chag, the joy, is just an expression of thanks. Purim, where we clash, we deal with the opposition and the struggle of Simcha Shal Mitzvah, or lack of enthusiasm for mitzvot. So there, every sense of enthusiasm and joy we show is a furthering of the cure, as it were. That's why Purim has this wilder expression of joy. So we've seen four very powerful use of Mishalim on the part of Rafuner. The Mashal, the broad life and the double life with the hotel, and, or the room, or the house with two different rooms, the mashal of the cook versus the nursing mother, giving expression to a significant educational split, the mashal about the clock to convey what the rav is supposed to mean for the town, and the mashal of the sick and the depressed person to explain, explain the difference between Purim and the other Chagin. I'd like to conclude by looking at a piece where Afunna describes the very endeavor of mashal. This is a piece in the Pesach volume. It is Samach Tes, the 69th piece of the Pesach volume. And here again, Rav Hunter begins with a sensitivity to language. Rav Hunter says the Shir Hashirim begins with Shir Hashirim Asher L'Shlomo. And he points out that Shlomo Melech, of course, is also the author of Mishlei and Kohelet. But neither of them begins with a similar phrase. It doesn't say Shir Hashirim Asher L'Shlomo. And he's curious why. Right? It says, But not this phrase, Asher L'Shlomo. Somehow, this work is somehow Shayach to Shlomo in a very uh, profound way. And Rafuna begins by discussing the concept of Shira. He points out that there's a Gemara that talks about Shira in the context of defeating the wicked. Right? The Gemara that says, David Shira Now, without getting to the whole question, there would seem to be contradictory sources in our tradition. Does one sing songs of praise when the wicked suffer? Certainly one could have a long conversation about that. But this Gemara does exist, this Gemara in Brachot. David says, Shira when the wicked are defeated. So he now, Rafunar identifies Shir with what he calls Nitzachon Hatov Al Hara. Sometimes in life we have a clash between good and evil. And when good wins, that's, a cause, that's cause for song, that's cause for expression of joy. That's Shir. Rafunar, though, points out that's not the only battle we have in this world. 
not the only victory. We're not only striving for a nitzachon hatova halara, the victory of good or evil, but sometimes we will, we're striving for a nitzachon hakodesh al hachol. Much of life is dvar shut is neutral, and we want to sanctify all those recesses and cracks of our existence. So Rav says there's nitzachon hatov halara that we want, and then there's nitzachon hakodesh al hachol. And Rav says this is true both on an individual level and on a communal level as well. And here Rav talks about the time of Shlomo HaMelech as a time that was the most profound realization of Nitzachon HaKodesh Alachol. And at the time of Shlomo HaMelech, all the institutions, the religious institutions and the political institutions came together. We have a king who represents Torah values. We have a Sanhedrin. We have Nevoah. Here Rav, Rav Huttner says we have the perhaps the executive and judiciary branches of government servicing L'Shem Shemayim. So Shlomo Melch becomes the symbol of Nitzachon, Nitzachon HaKodesh Alachol. Those of you who know Rav Kook might see a little bit of uh, interesting influence with a shift here. Rav Kook has a piece no wrote. We also talks about Shlomo HaMelech, his time being a unique time. But the terminology shift is significant. For Rav Kook, Shlomo Melch is a time when the religious idea and the national idea find fruition together. Rav Huna shifts the terminology so much, so somewhat. It's not the religious idea and the national idea, but rather it's Kodesh and Chol, which perhaps reflects the greater significance of nationalism in Rav Kook's thought than in Rav Huna's thought. Be that as it may, Rav Huna then goes on to say that... This explains why Rav refers to Shir Hashirim as Kodesh Kedashim, right? The famous line in, in Mesechet Yadayim, Kol Hashirim Kodesh, Vashir Hashirim Kodesh Kedashim. All other songs are holy, but Shir Hashirim is the holy of holies. And Rav points out, just like in life, you'd want to begin with Nitzachon HaTov Alara. First you have the victory of good over evil, and then after that you could move on to Nitzachon HaKodesh Alachol. So Rav says, this, it's therefore in the world of song, you begin with the Kodesh, and then you move beyond that to the higher level, which is Kodesh Kedashim. So Shir Shirim, which is from the pen of Shlomo Melch, represents the time of Nitzachon HaKodesh Alachol, and that's what makes it Kodesh Kedashim. But of course, Shir Shirim represents Nitzachon HaKodesh Alachol in a more significant way, not merely because it's from the time of Shlomo Melch. And here Rav I think, says something very beautiful. We talk oftenly about, frequently, excuse me, we talk frequently about the need to sanctify the mundane. The need to take the Dvar Harashut aspects of our existence and make them Kadosh. And as I've said, this is a significant theme in Rav Hunter. Now, if we, one asks us what that means, I think one could say it in various ways. So Rav Hunter points out, one way of saying it is as follows, that the body needs strength, the body needs to be healthy for Avodah Hashem. So much of Dvar Harashut is a... a means of getting the body healthy. One sleeps, and one has more energy and vitality in one's service of God. One eats a good meal, and one uh, returns to the Beit Midrash, or returns to a chesed campaign with renewed energy. And this is certainly true. This is one aspect of utilizing Dvar HaRashot for further religious purposes. Rav Hunter points out, however, there might be another way to do that. And that is viewing Dvar HaRashot as a mashal for understanding spiritual matters. Let us go back to the example of sleep. Sleep, on the one hand, could give us strength for doing mitzvot, and that was the first model we said. Says Rav Kook, excuse me, we could also look at sleep and see it as reflecting or a metaphor for some spiritual idea that we need to know about. And here, Rav Huttner points out that we could view sleep as a metaphor for tchiyat ha-meitim. 
right? That uh, we want to have a sense of what could it mean for a person to pass away and come back to life as it were. So sleep gives us an inkling of what that idea really is. And here it becomes more of an intellectual gesture, although an intellectual gesture of the imagination. One looks at aspects of the mundane world, and one sees through them certain religious ideas. And here Rav Kuhner gives a new slant on Bechol Drachecha De'eyu. Know God through all your ways. Not just use all your ways for Avodah Hashem, but it becomes, think about it, analyze. Know God through the ways of the world. Think about the world in a profound way that will give you a sense of various religious ideas. Now, if that's true, of course, the usage of mashal becomes the greatest expression of the nitzachon ha-kodesh alachol. And then if things come together beautifully. Shir ha-shirim is perhaps the most significant use of mashal in our religious worldview. Here one takes the most powerful human love we're aware of, the love between a husband and wife, between a man and a woman, and one converts that into a mashal for the pristine love between a human being and God. And this is the par excellence nitzachon hakodesh alachol, and this explains why this is happening and coming from the pen of Shlomo HaMelech. And Rav says that's why Shir Hashir Mashal is Shlomo. Right, this song in particular is the essence of Shlomo. This is what Shlomo Amalek and his time stands for. Kohelet and Mishlei also came from Shlomo, but they're not Asher Shlomo. Then Rav also uh, plays a bit with the word Shlomo, and he points at a few things that Shlomo are the same letters as the words Hamashal. Right, Shlomo Melch is the grand user of the user of the metaphor, and. It's also related to the word memshala, right? That this is the time of government being utilized, l'shem shemayim. And of course, Chazal say that Shlomo HaMelech is, uh, the usage of Shlomo in Shir Hashirim is Melech Shalom Shlomo. It's a reference to Ribbon Shalom. Because indeed, this is the essence of Shir Hashirim. This mashal, this nitzachon ha-kodesh alacho. So, so far in terms of Rav Hutner, we've seen his poetic spirit, his sensitivity to language, his use of mishalim and his insistence on the significance of Dvar Rashut. Dvar Rashut is not just a neutral area, but it remains to be sanctified in a host of ways. And next time we'll move on to other themes in Rafunner.